Okay, good evening, everyone, in person and on Zoom. All right, so our topic for tonight is the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which is without a doubt the most important anti-Semitic work ever published, uh, even more so than Mein Kampf, I would say, more influential. So the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, or the Protocols of the Meetings of the Learned Elders of Zion, there are different names uh, given in translation to the original work, was a forgery uh, and a hoax. It was both a forgery and a hoax, two different things. It's a forgery in the sense that it is asserting to be the, the minutes of meetings, which it was not, but it's also a hoax in the sense that even the organization which it claims to have meetings of doesn't actually exist. Moreover, it's a plagiarism because much of the text was borrowed from pre-existing works dating back to the 1860s and 1870s. Okay, so who wrote the protocols? When, when? Most likely, we don't know with 100% certainty, the protocols were written by, uh, were commissioned by the Ochrana, these uh, czarist secret police, and in particular, Russian agents who were living in Paris, uh, spies in France, and most importantly, Matvey Vesyelovich Golovinsky was an anti-Semitic journalist slash uh, agent provocateur for czarist police. Uh, when was it first published? When was it actually composed? Most likely between 1902 and 1903. It was possibly in reaction to the Russian Zionist Congress that occurred in September of 1902. It might have been originally meant as a parody for internal anti-Semitic consumption, meaning it was not supposed to be released as a true statement. It was supposed to be like a Purim Torah for the anti-Semites for them to get their giggles and their laughs about a so-called Jewish conspiracy to rule the world. But then it's, 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 it's coming out of Russia, but it's, it never specifically says where it's light on details, deliberately so, in order to be uh, able to be received favorably in all parts of the world. And it can be um, re- reconfigured to fit the dynamics of many different countries. So it probably began as a parody, but was then cleaned up to make make it look real, as though this was actually the minutes of a real meeting of Jewish elders. The pogroms of 1903 were incited by some of the very people involved in the earliest levels of the publication. Well, why would a book like The Elders of Zion um, appeal to czarist authorities, and what were they trying to accomplish with its release? So the Russian authorities had been long suspicious of the Kahal. What was the Kahal? The official Jewish community, the corporate body that governed the state within the state of Jews in Eastern Europe for many, many generations. Nicholas I had abolished the Kahal in 1844, But that didn't mean that suspicious people didn't think it was still around. Uh, And it's like the deep state. You know, it never really goes away as long as you want to think that it exists. So in the 1860s, a protocol style conspiracy uh, claim was made by a Meshumar, an apostate, Jacob Rathman, who wrote two books, The Local and Universal Jewish Brotherhood and The Book of the Kahal in which he asserted that, yes, the deep state of the rabbis, reactionary rabbis still exists, and 
that the Alliance Israelite Universelle, which had been established in France in 1860, was actually the central organization of world Jewry plotting to do all sorts of nefarious things to the Gentile governments. And that Adolf Kremiu, the great liberal uh, Jewish leader and political figure, was the grand you know, kahuna of this conspiracy. And that it was the successor to the Napoleonic Sanhedrin of 1807. So here Jacob Rathman, the Meshumid, is rolling together all sorts of different pieces of the puzzle of 19th century Jewish history into one package and saying it's all one big conspiracy. And he was a Junach. Okay. So Tsarist officials took Rathman's work seriously and ordered their agents to uproot the Kahal throughout the 1880s, even though it didn't actually exist. The, as I said, the protocols contain many generalizations, hardly any specifics. It advocates for Jews to take over the media and financial institutions, to change the traditional social order, to subvert the morals of the non-Jewish world, to control world economies, and to destroy civilization in an end-of-days apocalyptic scenario. Much of this is plagiarized from what earlier works. The answer is Maurice Jolie's The Dialogue in Hell between Machiavelli and Montesquieu of the 1860s was the primary work from which it was based. Uh, but there were other works from the 1850s through 1880s which were borrowed uh, very liberally from. Um, the protocols also plagiarized from Hermann Goethe's The Jewish Cemetery in Prague. There's a cemetery scene in the protocols which is borrowed from the Prague book. There were 24 protocols, meaning 24 chapters. And I'll just list what they are and give you a little flavor of what they were. The basic doctrine, right lies in might. Right lies in might. Not in being weak, but in strength. And that the Jew, who was seen as being weak, because it objectively the Jew really was weak, has to transform himself into projecting great power. Then, economic war and disorganization lead to international government, meaning the Jews are going to foment world war. Now, remember Hitler's speech on January 30th, 1939. If international finance Jewry shall uh, instigate another world war, it will result in the disappearance of the Jewish race from Europe. So that is a, a theme which already existed in the protocols and says that the Jews are trying to uh, create that scenario. Then methods of conquest, the destruction of religion by materialism. So here, Judaism is seen as hostile to world religion. Not as a world religion, but as an entity being hostile to world religion. Despotism and modern progress, the acquisition of land, the encouragement of speculation, a prophecy of worldwide war, the transitional government, the all-embracing propaganda, Abolition of the Constitution and the rise of autocracy, the Constitution of Autocracy and Universal Rule, the Kingdom of the Press. How do you like that? The Kingdom of the Press. So now the fourth estate becomes the first estate. All right. Turning public thought from essentials to non-essentials. Sounds like certain cable news channels of today. Uh, in other words, you, you, you focus the 24-hour news cycle on Stussen and distract people from what really matters. And that the Jews do this with some malevolent intent. The destruction of religion as a prelude to the rise of the Jewish God. Utilization of masonry. Heartless suppression of enemies. 
the nullification of education, the fate of lawyers and the clergy. I wonder what that is. Uh, the organization of disorder, mutual understanding between ruler and the people, the financial program, the beneficence of Jewish rule, the inculcation of obedience to the Jewish ruler. And that's the ending. Inculcation of obedience to the Jewish ruler. So these are some of the, the, the pieces of the puzzle. Now, one of the things that you might have noticed in some of these chapter titles is that they're mutually inconsistent. Mutually inconsistent. Is that a problem? Is that a problem for this as a selling point for the book? No, because people are not interested in consistency. They don't mind hypocrisy. They just want to read something that gives them uh, some uh, warm feeling in their, in, in their insides. I know that, that their enemy is, is the devil. So the protocols appealed to a wide and diverse audience because it embraced contradiction and inconsistency. The Jews are shadowy and behind every conspiracy, whether capitalist or socialist, left or right, democracy or tyranny. The Jew can be blamed for either one simultaneously and both. So the first publication was in a, a newspaper called Zenamia, which was a Black Hundreds publication. What did I tell about the Black Hundreds last time? They were the folks who were primarily guilty of the pogroms from Kishinev through 1906, 03 to 06. That's a, a, a czarist goon squad, basically. Uh, it was published. It has some meaning. I'm not really sure what the meaning is. But in those days, they knew what it meant. So it was then published in 1905 by Sergei Nilus as a book, The Great Within the Small, The Coming of the Antichrist and the Rule of Satan on Earth. Why in 1905 was there an especially strong motivation to blame the Jews for the ills of the world? So in particular in 1905, because of two reasons. One, the defeat of Russia in the Russo-Japanese War. And secondly, the precarious situation of Romanov rule in the revolution of 1905, where the Duma was established and there was an element of democracy or, or, or pub, you know, public participation in, in voting. So from an autocratic point of view, if you want to prop up the czar, this is a good convenient time to find a scapegoat. The convenient one is the Jew. And this literature does the job very well. Uh, but although 3,000 different pamphlets and books were published between 1903 and 1905 of an anti-Semitic nature in Russia, very few people paid attention to the protocols uh, until after World War I, at which time it became a worldwide sensation. Uh, why then? So the answer is that after the Bolshevik Revolution, the protocols were spread by fleeing white Russians who went to other parts of Europe and to America. Remember, the Red Army defeats the White Army, and the white Russians, who are monarchical, conservative, old-line Christian, Orthodox Christian, they really hate the Jews with a passion, and they blame the Jews for the demise of the Tsarist regime and for the rise of the atheistic and terrible uh, Soviet regime. So they take this literature, which nobody paid attention to for about 12 years, and say, aha, nevuah. How is it a Nevoa? Look, look, read the book. It said the Jews were going to take over the world. And they did, Taka, they did with a world war. And now they're in charge. So the Judeo-Bolshevik dictatorship of the Soviet Union was what the uh, anti-Semites were claiming exists. Now, was it really a Judeo-Bolshevik revolution? Hardly. 
there were enough Jews to make it look plausible, but hardly. But remember, these people have a political agenda of trying to destroy the Soviet Union in its, in its infancy and to restore the old line monarchy. Now, granted, after July of 1918, Nicholas II is dead with a bullet to his head and to every other part of his body. And his wife is dead and his five kids too. Uh, but still, there's a desire to bring back old line, the old line regime. And if they could get the Western governments to believe that the Soviet Union was some kind of Jewish evil dictatorship, courtesy of the propaganda of the protocols, all the better. And that's why the protocols becomes a hot item again uh, uh, on, the, on the, the bestseller list. Okay. Well, in 1920, huh? Yes, it did. Many people in the Western countries seriously contemplated whether these protocols were emis, were, were, were a, tr- a true representation of a meeting of some cabal of, of high-level Jews. So the question is, do you believe it or do you try to debunk it? And in 1920 and 1921, there were several significant attempts to debunk the protocols. One was by Princess Catherine Radswill, who was of the Polish-Lithuanian nobility, not the Russian nobility, but the old Polish-Lithuanian nobility, who gave a speech in 1921 in New York, claiming that the protocols were written in 1904-05 by anti-Semitic Russian journalists at the direction of the Russian secret police in Paris. And that theory still holds up to the test of time. Most people still believe, roughly speaking, that's how the protocols emerged, that it was fake. Now, the question is whether or not um, Nicholas II, the Tsar, believed it was true. And there's some evidence to suggest that Nicholas II, although he liked what he read, uh, upon finding out that it really was a fraud, and a fraud commissioned by his own employees, is purported to have said, quote, the protocols should be confiscated because a good cause cannot be defended by dirty means. Now, is this apocryphal? Did Nicholas II really say this? I have my doubts, but then again, I'm a Jew who doesn't like him. It could be he really did say it. I don't know. In England, the first English language publication of the Protocols was by Iron Spottiswood in Britain in 1920. In America, it circulated in type, typescript in 1918, 1919, and early 1920 among military figures, diplomatic officials, and other government officials. It was part of the Red Scare. It appeared in a serialized version in the Philadelphia Public Ledger, but all references to Jews were replaced with the word Bolshevik. So whereas in Russia, it was an anti-Semitic screed, in America, it was still an anti-Semitic screed, but the intent was not to badmouth Jews per se, but to badmouth the Bolshevik regime. Okay, so William Steed, a, a, a British intellectual and a, a journalist, wrote an article called The Jewish Peril, a disturbing pamphlet, a call for inquiry. And he wants to know, what, what, what are these protocols? Are they authentic? If so, what malevolent assembly concocted these plans and gloated over their exposition? Or are they a forgery? And if so, whence comes the uncanny note of prophecy, prophecy in part fulfilled, in part so far gone in the way of fulfillment? Meaning, he has trouble believing this really is, is true, that there's a cabal of Jews who tried to, who wrote down a plan to take over the world. It doesn't seem real. But on the other hand, parts of it seem to have happened in, in real life. So I don't know what to believe. That's dangerous. 
when a public figure who is not supposed to be some kind of known bigot, but rather a respected public intellectual says, I'm not really sure. That's bad for the Jews. Okay, so Henry Ford published a series of anti-Semitic articles in the Dearborn Independence. We spent the whole session last year on Henry Ford. I'm not going to go to it in great detail, but suffice it to say for now that in those articles in the Dearborn Independent, he quotes heavily from the protocols. Most likely those articles were written by William Cameron, who was his editor, and Ford later published a book, The International Jew, The World's Foremost Problem. He noted the following. The only statement that I care to make about the protocols is that they fit in with what is going on. They are 16 years old, and they have fitted the world situation up to this time. So basically, he's conceding, I don't really give a damn whether the original work represents a meeting of ill-intentioned Jews to rule the world. What matters is things appear to be going in that direction. And the real world matters in the world more than the world of, of words on a page. So we better watch out. The Jews are on the march. Not necessarily. No, no. Okay. Now, the most important uh, debunking of the protocols, well, actually two of them, were done by Philip Graves in Times of London. He was the Constantinople correspondent for the Times of London. And he wrote a series of articles showing the origins of the protocols and how they have no basis in fact, and that they originate as a czarist agent's conspiracy. And the other one was a book written by Herman Bernstein, a reporter for the New York Herald in 1921, titled The History of a Lie. And I'll read to you from the introduction to his book because he really hits the nail on the head. This is the history of a lie, a cruel and terrible lie, invented for the purpose of defaming the entire Jewish people. And he goes through how it was made by the Black Hundreds and so on and so forth. Tsarism destroyed itself, but the agents of Tsarism, still dreaming of their past glory and the restoration of their privileges, are at work again, both here and abroad. So he's emphasizing that there is a real-world political agenda in publicizing and publishing further the protocols, that the czarist uh, regime is dead, but there are those who would like to see it restored. And they're using this as a way of riling up Western opinion against the successor uh, um, governments to the old autocratic governments of Eastern Europe. Out of the scrap heap of Russian autocracy, They have exhumed their old weapons and are striking at the Jews again. Upon the structure of the old myths, they are striving to to erect new falsehoods in order to intensify everywhere chaos and confusion and dissatisfaction so they may attain their dastardly and selfish ends. Okay, so he goes on and on and on uh, and says that uh, a lot of this is absurd, that much of the protocols makes absolutely no sense. All the revolutionary leaders of Germany are credited to the Jewish movement, and they are the Jew baiters, and their blind madness have gone so far as to declare that Kaiser Wilhelm was not only influenced by the Jews, but that he was of Jewish descent himself, and did not properly defend the Hohenzollern dynasty at the whim of a Jewish world organization. In other words, the most absurd thing is that the Kaiser purposely lost the war because he was in cahoots with the Jews to lose the war. Nuts. But people want you to believe all sorts of crazy things. Okay, so that was Bernstein's attempt to debunk the protocols. Now, in the years that followed, um, for example, 
1923, in Mein Kampf, Hitler does make reference to, uh, to, the, to the book. Hitler says the following, the protocols are based on a forgery. The Frankfurter Zeitung moans every week, meaning he says the, the Jew lovers say that it's a forgery which is the best proof that they are authentic. In other words, if the Jew lovers say it's not true, it must be that it's true. And the important thing is that with the positively terrifying certainty, they reveal the nature and activity of the Jewish people and expose their inner context as well as their ultimate final aims. So most likely, the Nazi leadership knew that the protocols were a forgery, but it didn't matter to them because it was useful propaganda. Although interestingly, after 1939, they stopped publishing it. Not really sure why. Okay. In 1934, there was a trial in Switzerland, the Bern trial. The Bern trial was a lawsuit by the Swiss Jewish Association and the Jewish community of Bern, uh, suing the publishers of, a, of an edition of the protocols for violating a local statute, which said that the publication of immoral, obscene, and brutalizing texts is illegal. The plaintiffs won at trial, but lost on appeal. Why? Because the, the appellate judges determined that this was not immoral. It may have been false and, uh, you know, nefarious politically, but it wasn't inherently immoral. So uh, basically the, the case was thrown out, although the, the legal fees were paid by the Jew haters. At this trial, all sorts of prominent people were called to testify, including Chaim Weizmann and other people who had been present at the first Zionist Congress on the premise that the protocols really was a, a, a statement about what had occurred in Basel in 1897. Now, remember, this is 38 years later, but some people are still alive. Weizmann was a young man at Basel in 1897, and now he's the president of the World Zionist Organization, big heavy hitter. Also, Rabbi Aaron Price of Stockholm had been a member of the First Zionist Congress, was still alive and was called to testify. So this was a cause celeb in Jewish Switzerland uh, in the 1930s. There was another trial at Basel. And again, Rabbi Aaron Price was called to testify and he countersued. So there were examples of litigation involving the publication of this uh, malicious book. Um, after World War I in Germany, the Hohenzollern family, the family of the Kaiser, supported publication of the protocols as a way of justifying uh, why they lost. In other words, the Jews sold us out. The Jews are these evil actors behind the scenes, and we would have won the war if not for their interference. Um, the protocols made its way to the Arab world in 1927, but interestingly, not to the Arab Muslim world, to the Arab Christian world. As I said a couple of weeks ago, how does anti modern racial anti-Semitism make it to the Middle East, where it becomes very popular, wildly popular, through the Christians, not through the Muslims? It trickles down to the Muslims eventually. So a Muslim pub publication of the Protocols does not happen until 1951, a good 25 years after it arrived in its Christian form. Okay, well... Um, one of the, uh, the reasons why the book became so popular among the white Russians, the supporters of the Tsar after the fall of, of his regime, was because Tsarina Alexandra, his wife, had a copy of the protocols in her possession when the family was assassinated in 1918. So whenever like an important historical personality dies, 
Everyone wants to know what was the book that was on their, on their uh, nightstand when they died, you know? So what, what book was on the Tsarina when she was shot, when she was butchered by Lenin's goons? And the answer is the protocols. So people thought, oh, it must be that it's the, 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 the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Um, so there were questions how to deal with the, uh, the, the release of the protocols in the United States, how to deal with Henry Ford. Some wanted to boycott his products. Some wanted to have private diplomacy, but private diplomacy didn't really work. So then there had to be a mass public campaign to pressure him. He eventually uh, uh, was sued by Aaron Sapiro, a union leader, and they settled out of court and he had to issue a public apology. So let's now go to, I want to spend most of our time tonight on two American documents about the protocols. The first one is from 1920. December 1st, 1920. This is at the height of the, the Red Scare and the um, enthusiastic reception of the protocols in the United States among high-level personalities, including people in the high levels of government. And this scares the Jewish community. So if I had to ask you... Yeah. Are they critical readers or are there readers that have no love for Jews and now they finally have a... I think that critical readers were reading this and thinking this is brilliant. Most likely they were the dummies and the people who were not necessarily dummies, but who were looking to find some hook, some literary hook to base their bigotry or to base not so much bigotry, but a political agenda that in which bigotry proves useful. Okay, so if I had to ask you which American Jewish organization was to lead the charge in pushing back against the uh, spread of the protocols in the United States, which organization would it be? ADL. So ADL, potentially. And the American Jewish Committee. American Jewish Committee, good. So American Jewish Committee uh, is the correct answer, uh, but ADL was involved as well because the B'nai B'rith is involved. Um, so... There is, for those keeping score at home, you can find it on the, uh, on the internet. It's uh, the American Jewish Committee's public statement of December 1st, 1920, in reaction to the protocols. So this statement is great for three reasons. One, it goes through the publication history to show the falsehood uh, of what is a hoax and a forgery. Secondly, uh, it explains why a book, a, a, a work that was from 1903 to 1905 has been repopularized now, what our enemies are trying to accomplish by releasing it now. And thirdly, it's fascinating for which organizations participated in the joint statement. So I want to do the, the organizational angle first, because for those of us who studied American Jewish history last year, you'll know that we didn't always get along so well. And the internecine fights of American Jewry could sometimes cripple our ability to engage in, in uh, defense work. So on the masthead, the top organization is the American Jewish Committee. Who's the president? Louis Marshall, the great New York lawyer, Louis Marshall. The vice presidents are Cyrus Adler, the, ch- the pr- uh, chancellor of the president of JTS and of Dropsy College, uh, and Julius Rosenwald, the great philanthropist. Who else is on the executive committee? Oscar Strauss. Okay. Uh, and uh, Jacob Schiff, interestingly, is no longer 
on the executive committee. He had been, but he was elderly and died a few months later um, and was, was off the committee at that point. Now, who's the second listed group? The Zionist Organization of America. Remember, the American Jewish Committee is what, with regard to Zionism? Anti-Zionist in a big way. So now they're cooperating with the ZOA, led by Julian Mack and Jacob de Haas, of interesting character himself. So that tells you Zionists and anti-Zionists are collaborating to push back against anti-Semitism. What's next? The Union of American Hebrew Congregations. So that's the Reform Congregational Union. Not surprising. They regarded themselves as uh, a major American organization for uh, protecting Jewish interests that predated the AJC. The next one is the Union of Orthodox Jewish Congregations of America, led by Rabbi Herbert S. Goldstein, okay, of the Institutional Synagogue of the West Side. So here you have the Reform working with the Orthodox. Then you have the United Synagogue of America, the nascent conservative movement led by Elias Solomon and Charles Hoffman, no relation to me. Then the provisional organization of the American Jewish Congress. Remember, what was the American Jewish Congress? It was supposed to be a temporary organization, which was more democratic than the American Jewish Committee, which was a bunch of hoity-toity German Jewish elites that were not elected, but appointed by a small group, self-selected group. The Congress was the brainchild of Stephen Wise, was supposed to be for the Hamonam, the masses, the Eastern European Jews in America, and was supposed to go to the the Versailles Conference, the Paris Peace Conference, and pursue Jewish interests there. After the Paris Peace Conference, that organization was supposed to cease to exist. But as with all these alphabet super organizations, once they exist, they don't want to cease existing. So Wise kept it going, and it ended up becoming a big to-do, the American Jewish Congress. I mean, today it's nothing but a plaything for a wealthy macher. Uh, I'm not going to say who. So the next I, uh, uh, organization was the Independent Order of the B'nai B'rith and the ADL, led by Adolf Krauss. So the, the B'nai B'rith had been around since 1843, um, and the ADL had been around since the Leo Frank case, which was six, seven years earlier. Then the Central Conference of American Rabbis, the Reform Rabbis. Then the Rabbinical Assembly, the Conservative Rabbis. And lastly, the United Orthodox Jewish Rabbis of America, the Aguda Sarabonin, led by Rabbi Philip Hillel Klein. So you have the long-bearded Orthodox rabbis, the sort of clean-shaven conservative rabbis, the Chazer-Fressing Reform Rabbis, okay, all the, the, the synagogue unions, and the Zionists and the anti-Zionists, all together, biyachad, kol Yisrael arivim zebazeh. Beautiful. Well, it makes sense, because the protocols is not picking their flavors. You're right. So, so this makes sense, and I'm happy to see that it was able, they were able to work it out. Now, what did they say? So now that we've gone through who was involved, what did they actually say? So, the following. A conference to discuss the widespread campaign of secret anti-Jewish propaganda in the United States was called by the American Jewish Committee. The conference was participated in by the foremost national Jewish organizations and authorized the issuance of a public statement in which the so-called protocols of the learned elders of of Zion was uh, now being circulated in large numbers by secret agencies are condemned as a forgery 
and the charge of Bolshevism is a part of a, Jew, a conspiracy of Jews and Freemasons to secure world dominations is denounced as a malicious invention inspired by foreign reactionary forces for the purpose of breeding suspicion and hatred towards Jews and Freemasons in the U.S. and in order to discredit free government in the eyes of the European masses and facilitate the restoration of absolutism in government. So that's a, a mouthful. What are they trying to do, these bad guys? Defame the Jews in the eyes of the Western world, including in the eyes of Americans, and to discredit free governments in the eyes of Europeans. Remember, a, a significant uh, uh, swath of European territory had never really been free. It had always been ruled by absolutist monarchs. And now they were gone. So remember, the Hohenzollerns are gone, the Habsburgs are gone, and the Romanovs are gone, all in one year. Granted, the Habsburg monarchy was a, was a constitutional monarchy at that point, and there were a lot, I mean, it was a, it was a democracy in, in Austria and Hungary at that point, but still, the head of state was a powerful king, uh, and in Germany, although, yes, it was a democracy at that point in, in the imperial era, the Kaiser was still an important figure, the Kaiser. Russia had no democracy, and the, the Tsar ruled with an iron fist. So the idea here is, were they going to blame the Jews and discredit free government that people will want to bring back autocracy? Okay. So... Nobody can read the future. All we can do in the moment is to push back against our current enemies and try to uh, convince the general public that the worst things being said about our people lack any validity. So it talks about uh, what's in the protocols that uh, learned elders of Zion, that it was, it was circulated clandestinely in typewritten form, published in England, printed in the United States. Bolshevism is characterized as a movement of, for, and by Jews. And they're going to have to go work hard to show that that's not really true. But there may be some Jews involved, but it's not, you know, of the people, for the people, by the people, like, like Lincoln said. This is not of the Jews, for the Jews, by the Jews. Then they mention Henry Ford and a desire by the promoters of autocracy to bring back autocracy. Then an interesting point. In this public statement, they say, we, the Jews, the important Jews, thought it was prudent to ignore this that it's beneath our dignity to respond to the accusations that are leveled in the protocols. And we would have preferred that we wouldn't take notice of it and the general public wouldn't take notice of it. Yeah, that it could circulate in small uh, uh, circles of anti-Semitic sentiment, fine. But we would ignore it and everybody else wouldn't know anything about it. Problem is, that circle expanded and now too many people are reading it. It's all over the country. We don't have the luxury of saying we're not going to deign to get involved. The time has come, humiliating as though it may be, for the Jews to make an answer. So what's their answer? One, the protocols are a base forgery. There has never been an organization of Jews known as the elders of Zion. So there's no such organization. And if there's no such organization, they couldn't have possibly had a meeting. If they didn't have a meeting, how do you have the minutes of that meeting? Couldn't be. Then, the Jews never dreamed of a dictatorship or the destruction of religion or interference with industrial prosperity or the overflow of civilization. That's not what Judaism teaches. 
Then they go on to tell the story of the Jewish people, the beleaguered nature of the Jewish people. From the time of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem by Titus, the Jews have had no political state. For centuries, they were forced to wander from land to land seeking refuge. And it's only in the last 50 years that the Jews of Western Europe became emancipated. Far from desiring to govern the world, the Jews were content with the opportunity to live. Meaning, the Goyim are always killing us. Halavai, we should live. Forget ruling anybody, we just want to survive. Numerically, they constitute less than 1% of the population of the earth. And more than one half of them are on the verge of starvation. That's an important line. There were those who would believe all the Jews are rich. The Jews are ungestup with money. Okay, no. Half of world Jewry is living subsistence starvation wages. Yeah, there are some important rich Jews in the West who have a lot of guilt. But we're 1% of the world population. We never wanted to take over the world. We're lucky if we survive. And half of us are starving. Okay. It would be madness, preposterous, to think that the Jews would want to take over the other 99% of the world's population. Then it goes on to discuss the, uh, the origins of the book itself, the earliest publications, and questioning where the authors uh, or the publishers claim to have gotten the manuscript from. What was their story? Their cl- the publishers are saying, we didn't make this up. This is real. Well, where'd you get it from? They don't have a consistent story of where the, 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 the uh, content of the book comes from. And if they don't have a consistent story, it must be because they're telling a Baba Mice. It's not a real story. Okay. So then they get into the issue of Herzl and the first Zionist Congress. If the accusation is that Theodore Herzl was this uh, character who's seeking world domination and that he is the elder of Zion and that the, the Basel Conference of 1897 was the basis for these minutes, well, the counter-argument is that he presided at that Congress and all the deliberations were held in the light of day, meaning there were 200 delegates, actually 194 delegates to be exact, and there was media press coverage of the event from newspapers from all over the world. So what do you, what do you mean there was some secret uh, cabal looking to take over the world whose uh, intentions were not known at the time? Everybody was there, and the media was there covering every minute of the proceedings. It was, it was at, and all they were talking about was Israel. So the whole thing is absurd. Now, then it goes on to explain that the agent provocateurs wrote this book, and their intention is to malign the Jews, and that some of these very same people um, were involved with the Bayless trial. Interestingly, that one of the prosecutors in the Bayless trial is actively distributing copies of the protocols in the United States of America. And I find that fascinating, because Bayless himself went to America. So here, his prosecutor and the defendant Bayless both leave Russia and go to America, but each for their own reasons. Bayless leaves because Tsarist Russia was horrible to him. He wants out. He wants freedom in the United States. His prosecutor was a white Russian, as opposed to the red Russians, who fled the Soviet Union to the United States. <laughs> I wonder if they've crossed paths on the streets of New York. 
<laughs> okay. Now, to give like a logical, sober, yeah. objective debunk. Yes. But you can't reason with a mad dog. So I, I don't think the intention was to reason with the mad dog. I think the intention was to convince people who ha- have elected office or appointed office in the United States that who don't really know much about this. Remember, Americans tend to be ignorant, especially of foreign affairs. And certainly a hundred years ago, when America was surrounded by two oceans and what happened across the pond didn't matter. It would be very tempting for people who might have an inkling that the Jews are bad. I don't like the Jews so much to to read something. And if, even if not believe it, believe that it speaks to some bigger truth, some inner truth. But just reflecting on modern Yeah. Israel is terrible without Right. Why don't they correct the narrative and yeah. tell the real story? Uh-huh. It's very hard. It's very hard. It's very hard to tell a story because there's a counter story. Okay. So, now, then, then it explains the following. The opponents of democracy are at work here. They are hoping to undermine the public's belief in democracy as a form of government. Uh, the, the, they go on to the farcical absurdities of the document need not be uh, uh, addressed in great detail, but they go through a few examples of where the author of the protocols says something that makes absolutely no sense. Like, for example, the, the English are the descendants of the lost tribes of Israel, um, or that the, the roots of King David uh, will, uh, will become the real Pope of the Universal Church. I mean, all sorts of nonsense. Then, point number two. The contention that the genuineness of the protocols is established by the outbreak of Bolshevism in Russia 12 years after their publication, is, uh, that Bolshevism is a Jewish movement, is absurd in theory and absolutely untrue in fact. Basically, what they're saying is just because something happened a decade or more after the publication of a book doesn't mean that that book was truthful, or for that matter, that it's prophecy. It just means that there is some uh, connection that can be drawn even if it's a false connection. So the Bolshevik revolution, does that prove the Jews are taking over the world? Well, only if, you, if you've already convinced yourself that the Bolshevik revolution is itself a Jewish conspiracy. But the originators of Bolshevism, according to this text, were all non-Jews. They were all non-Jews. That's true. Menshevik party was heavily Jewish, including the big guy at the top. But the original Bolsheviks were all Gentiles. Then... The people's come. What was that? Who was the guy with that? Uh, Trotsky. Was, okay. was Menshevik? Yeah. So now, uh, the people's commissars, there were 20 members, only two were Jews, Trotsky and Sverdlov. The Central Committee of the Communist Party, there were four out of 13 were Jews. But they go on to say that these Jews who were involved at the highest levels of the communist movement in Russia have no regard for their Jewish identity, for the Jewish religion, or the fate of the Jewish people. It means nothing to them. They have divorced themselves completely from their former co-religionists and their supposed kinsmen and landsmen. They're not landsmen anymore. They're out of the fold. They couldn't care less. Moreover, the Orthodox Jews, whose numbers preponderate, remain loyal to the faith of their fathers, regard the Bolsheviks as enemies of all religion, 
So here, the American Jewish Committee is a basically reform organization. I mean, it's, it's a secular Jewish organization, but it's dominated by reform Jews who don't eat kosher, don't keep Shabbos, don't daven, don't put fill in nothing, grunish. Okay, but they're willing to concede that most of the Jews of Eastern Europe are still traditional Orthodox. And the traditional Orthodox, what's their attitude towards communism? It's terrible. They hate it. It's the, against everything they stand for. So how could you say that Bolshevism is a Jewish movement if the vast majority of Jews think that it's, it's the worst possible uh, development in, in world affairs? I understand. Okay. The next point they make is the Jews are very patriotic. Very patriotic. The Jews fought in World War I. Forget about fighting for America, which they certainly did. But the Jews fought for Russia in World War I. 300,000 Jewish soldiers fought for the Tsarist army in World War I. Despite the fact that they were not emancipated peoples, they were subjected to all sorts of discriminatory treatment, and yet they were willing to bear arms and lay down their lives for the sake of, a, of, uh, of, the, of the so-called uh, nation. Doesn't matter. Don't bring that up. Doesn't matter. They didn't have a choice. They did it. So how could it be that the Jews, equal, equaling Bolsheviks, are out to destroy absolutism, czarist absolutism, when in tremendous numbers they fought the good fight in his army? That's the argument. Moreover, the the Russians were allies of the Western powers, America, France, England. So if Jews fought for Russia, they're fighting on the right team. So now in 1920, when an American Jewish community wants to tell the American Gentiles, hey, look, our co-religionists across the ocean are good people. They fought on our side of this war. They fought on our side of this war. Now, granted, there were also a couple hundred thousand who fought for the for the uh, the other team in the in in the Austrian army, in the German army. But that doesn't matter for the time being. What matters is the Russian Jews who are being maligned here. They fought the good fight for the right side. Okay. As for Henry Ford, they say he's just a dupe. Those are exact words. He's merely a dupe. They don't want to say that he's a chacham. And that he knows what he's doing and that his anti-Semitism is cerebral in any way. No, he's an idiot. He fell for something that is false that was fed to him by powers that be across the ocean with a political agenda. It's a, it's a chutzpah for them to even say it, but they say it. Uh, and those are the exact words. Okay. Now, why does the uh, these uh, sinister actors behind the scenes, why are they trying to deceive the public? They're trying to, quote, wedge, to, to strengthen the wedge of discord by arousing suspicion and inciting overt acts, not only against those of Jews of Jewish origin, but also against Freemasons and hoping to discredit free government. And they blame the Habsburgs, the Hohenzollerns, the Romanovs, all for trying to do this in the name of absolutism. But the Jews are smart. Jews are very smart. They know that if you only defend the Jews, it's not going to be an easy sell because there are plenty of people who already don't like us. You have to find another group that's being besmirched 
and tie your fate to their fate, knowing that the general public will more be, be more kindly disposed towards that other group, and then it will work in your favor. What is that other group? The Freemasons. So this text says that the Freemasons, okay, are... Uh, nothing wrong with them. They're not bad people. And the fact that 15 presidents of the United States of America, including George Washington, have been members of that order. So if you're going to besmirch the Jews in this protocols and say that it's a Masonic Jewish plot to take over the world, well, guess what? George Washington was a member of that plot. It's a brilliant strategy to try to push aside the whole issue. But the Jews know what they're doing. Now, why are the Freemasons in that book to begin with? Because much of the book was plagiarized from works in the 19th century that had originally accused not the Jews of a, of a, of a world domination plot, but rather the Freemasons. This goes back 100 years even before the Protocols. So a cut and paste. It's a cut and paste job. Now, in the time we have left, I want to examine a document that was prepared by uh, a subcommittee to investigate the administration of the Internal Security Act and other internal security laws of the Committee on the Judiciary of the United States Senate in 1964. 1964, and the committee uh, was uh, following senators, Kenneth Keating, uh, Everett Dirksen, Roman Ruska, Sam Irvin, Thomas Dodd, uh, Hugh Scott, and a few others. Okay, so... What does this have to say? In every age and country, there are their share of fabricated historical documents foisted upon the unsuspecting public for some malign purpose. Meaning, somebody puts out there a piece of paper, says this is the real thing. It's an old document. It's, an old, it's a real legitimate document. But they made it up out of whole cloth. And their intention is to do damage to some other group. Now, addressing the protocols, the real enemy, therefore, according to the protocols, is not international communism, but international Jewry. The Jews are being uh, put down by the protocols as released by the Soviet Union. Now, remember, the original protocols was attacking Judeo-Bolshevism, but the Soviet Union is a Bolshevik country. But they also like the protocols, and they release it for their advantage. But instead of it being the Bolsheviks who are the bad guy, because they are the Bolsheviks, who's the bad guy? International Jewry. Okay. So it's printed in the Soviet Union as part of the unrelenting campaign against the Jewish minority in the Soviet Union. The only difference in the document is they, they equate international Jewry with international capitalism. So in the earlier version of the protocols, the Jews are socialists and communists, and that's why they're bad. In the Soviet Union version, the Jews are capitalists, and that's why they're bad. What I find fascinating is that this is 1964. When does the Soviet Jewry movement begin? About 1963. You have student struggle for Soviet Jewry has its earliest origins around 1963. The the the, uh, the rally on the steps of Parkey's synagogue with Rabbi Schneier and the, the founding of the Appeal of Conscience 
was January of 65. But already in 63, things get started. And in 64, the U.S. Senate is aware that there's a problem, that American Jews are beginning to advocate for their brethren that are locked away in the Soviet Union. Okay. It's impossible not to be concerned over the cynical way in which some groups in the name of anti-communism continue to use the protocols to promote prejudice and hostility among Americans, and thus to weaken the country's effort in the real fight against communism. So here the Senate is saying, listen, what's going on in the Soviet Union and their version of the protocols to attack the Jews as capitalists, that's what's going on over there. We know about it, we don't like it, but what, what can we do? But there's, a, but there's a parallel problem, that here in America, the original version of the protocols is still circulating, in which the Jew is the communist, not the capitalist. And that anti-communists in America, like McCarthyites, except McCarthy's long gone at that point, are throwing around the protocols and saying, hey, we know who the bad guys are, the Jews. And this is distracting from the real efforts to attack communism. Because since we know the protocols are a forgery and a hoax and a farce, if we focus our anti-communist activities on a hoax, we're not going to address the real issues. So we, the Senate committee, want to put aside the shtusim, debunk it, and get back on track in our anti-communism. Okay. So the report says that the protocols are rambling and incoherent. They're mutually inconsistent. It's a big lie. They use the words big lie. That J. Edgar Hoover also considered it a lie quote, the people who gave the world the concept of our monotheistic God and the Ten Commandments cannot remain Jews and follow the atheism of Karl Marx and the deceit of the communist movement. So here, J. Edgar Hoover, not exactly the most kosher of people, okay, um, is saying, you can't be a Jew and a communist. The Jews gave us the Bible and the Ten Commandments and monotheism. Marx gave us atheism and, and all sorts of it's bad stuff. You can't mix the two. The Jews who are avowed Jews can't be Marxists. Okay. Then uh, they quote a few different professors, and a professor at the University of Chicago says that the Protocols is one of the stupidest forgeries of all literary history. The report concludes with the following line. Falsely using the guise of fighting, anti- uh, fighting communism today, they, like the communists, who set class against class, would set religion against religion, both would subvert the American system. So here the United States Senate report is saying that the the Soviet anti-Semites are trying to subvert the American system and attacking the Jews in the process. And the American anti-Semites, while ostensibly anti-communist, are actually just pitting class against class, religion against religion, and destroying the camaraderie of... Of American citizenry, that American citizens are supposed to have an affinity for one another, regardless of our religious differences and even our political differences within reason. And here, this crowd with this hoax and this evil literature is doing the work of our enemies, and it must be exposed for what it is. So that's my spiel for tonight. So this, I wanted to focus on these documents to show that American Jewry and the American government know the dangers of the protocols, 
and are willing to speak out publicly and act against it. Of course, while that is helpful here in the United States, it doesn't prevent bad things from happening overseas. So just to give you a flavor of what was going on elsewhere in the world with regard to the, to the reissuance of the protocols, um, in 1974, they were republished in India, titled The International Conspiracy Against Indians. Now the Jews are against the Indians. It was published in 1924 in Japan. Uh, it was published in um, 1985 in Iran. In 1988, the Hamas Charter specifically cites the protocols as explaining Zionist territorial expansionism. Okay, I'll read to you. Isn't all these done to when the Jews just started doing business in these countries? Not necessarily. But I, 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 I want to read to, to the Hamas Charter. The Zionist plan is limitless. After Palestine, the Zionists aspired to expand from the Nile to the Euphrates. Right out of the Bible. When they will have digested the region they, will, they overtook, they aspire further expansion. Their plan is embodied in the protocols of the elders of Zion, and their present conduct is best proof of what we are saying. In other words, Israeli-occupied uh, West Bank, as far as they're concerned, is the first step towards beyond that, Jordan, Syria, to Iraq, to beyond, and it's all in the protocols. Then it was reissued in Moscow in 1992. It was uh, in, 19, in 2002 because people stopped reading. And nobody really reads the whole protocols. It gets boring after a while. You just get a flavor of it and you develop your Jew hatred. But also people don't want to read because we live in an age of movies and the Internet. So in 2002, Egyptian satellite television broadcast a 41-part miniseries called The Horseman Without a Horse largely based on the protocols. So for those illiterates who just want to watch a movie, you have a 41-part movie. Uh, and then uh, Hezbollah put out their version of it in 2003. Um, Syria put out their version of it in 2005. You get the point. But in the Arab Muslim world, this continues to be an important work. Okay, so uh, we'll stop here. Next time, next week, will be the 11th annual pre-Pesach history class. The topic will be the model Seder in tradition and history. And then no class on Pesach. After Pesach, we'll get back to business. We'll discuss anti-Semitism of the interwar period. Okay, folks, see you next time.